Hello and welcome to Amplify Archaeology Podcast. When people think about insects providing information about the past, they might be thinking of John Hammond in Jurassic Park with his little mosquito stuck in amber. Unfortunately, here we're a little less likely to obtain Viking DNA from archaeological insects, and instead of a pretty amber lump on top of the walking stick, it would be something uh, probably a bit smellier, a bit lump of feces, not quite as classy looking. But insects can still provide a wealth of information to give us a real kind of understanding of life in the past and conditions. And here to discuss archaeological insects with me is Dr. Steve Davis from the School of Archaeology in UCD. Thanks for joining me, Steve. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. Uh, thanks for asking me to do this. It's great. Yeah, I think it's really interesting. But, like, insects are obviously very small. Uh, I imagine they're the kind of thing that gets battered around an awful lot over time and as context changes and so on. So how do you actually go about finding archaeological insects? And do they generally kind of preserve well? Are they quite a hardy source of information? Well, I think actually when you, when you say they're very small, I think, I think actually a lot of the time people underestimate how, just how small they are. And most of the insects that you might see around your garden, for example, are, are reasonably substantial. You, you'll, you'll move a flower pot and you might see a devil's coat horse or some reasonably substantial beetle that may be a centimetre centimeter and a half long. Most of the things that we're talking about in, in the British or Irish insect fauna are less than half a centimetre for the whole thing. Many of them are less than a couple of millimetres. So you really you miss them a lot of the time. There are, there are a lot of insects around that you just don't see. A lot of beetles, for example, that are just too small for you to really take any great notice of. They preserve really pretty well. So they, they have this hard exoskeleton, which is, which is reinforced with um, a substance called chitin. Um, so they, as long as they're, they're kept kind of constantly wet or constantly dry is what we tend to say. So waterlogged material is, is ideal for preservation. Um, you can get desiccation, but obviously we don't see a lot of desiccation in, in Ireland as a preservation method. And sometimes mineralization, if you find them in, in really, really foul kind of cesspit deposits, for example, they can become mineralized. They're actually literally fossilized. Oh, wow. And, and are they the kind of ideal sorts of contexts then that you would get the most information? You know, you, you'd find insects most readily, that those kind of waterlogged. Yeah, so waterlogged stuff is is where we normally see insect remains, uh, and it, it's quite variable. So, for example, um, some waterlogged material. If you're talking about, let's say, raised bog peat, raised bog peat can be very difficult to work in. So, going back to your previous question, to an extent, the way we isolate the insects is we don't just look through the sample a bit at a time. Not unless you're engaged in a very particular sort of activity. Normally, what we do is, is use a very um, simple method called paraffin flotation, which was invented really in the, in the 60s and hasn't changed an awful lot since then. And it relies on the hydrophobic nature of the chitin. So what I mean by that is, is when insects get rained on, the water tends to just run off them. Otherwise, they just drown because they don't breathe. But, um, so um, the, the chitin itself is, is hydrophobic. The water runs off of it. So when we just, we, we essentially get our sample, we stick it in a bucket, we mash it up for a bit, gently so we don't mash it up because if we mash it up hard we're basically breaking up the insects still further and the insects don't preserve as whole insects they preserve as bits they fall apart as, as do most of us when we die and, and get buried in the ground for quite a long time we don't tend to stay articulated um so you you mash it up you you run it through the sieve you wash out all of the fine material um you drain it off and you're left with something that looks quite like a cow pat actually which is generally a uh, a, a compressed, um, fairly dry and fairly clean block of, of organic material. And you mix that with a little bit of paraffin, generally the standard paraffin that you go and buy down at Woody's, uh, mix it around a bit more, add some water. And what happens is that the water uh, and the paraffin don't mix. So the paraffin floats to the top as a, as a film. And because the chitin is hydrophobic, that sticks with the paraffin because it, it would prefer to be with the paraffin rather than the water and it comes to the top with the paraffin as long as as well as anything that's particularly light so if you're talking about working in in peat you might get a lot of plant remains like plant remains that float to the top as well and then we just sort the insects out from that so that that's how we isolate the insects okay. um they tend to get 
we tend to see the best insect preservation in waterlogged material, but it can be quite variable. So sometimes you'll see things which you don't expect great preservation in and you can get good stuff. Sometimes, conversely, you might think, oh, there's going to be loads of stuff in here and you, you process it and there's very little. And, and to some extent, that's an archaeological question uh, as to why that why those differential preservation things are going on. Okay, that's very interesting. And what sort of information can insects give us about things like, say, diet or, or the health of people? I mean, I, I know in some cultures, um, you know, people eat insects. And is there any evidence of that in Ireland, for example? Or are you tending to find, are, those, uh, are the insects that you find here telling us more about things like parasites or pests, that kind of side of things? Well, I think I think the key to to most environmental stuff is is this idea of doing multi proxy studies. So insects on their own, whilst they can give you some ideas about things like diet, so you you'll get a lot of things, for example, which are specialist uh, the phytophages, so they eat particular types of plants. So to some extent, they can tell you about diet, but more often they'll be telling you about what plants might be growing in the area of a place or plants that are being exploited in other ways, maybe brought in from the, from the wider area. In combination, for example, with plant macrofossil analysis, then you have quite a powerful tool. So the plant macrofossils might be able to tell you which plants you're seeing. Um, that actually, if you're taking a cesspit, for example, as we like to do, um, you'll be able to look at the plant remains that are in that cesspit, which may well have been consumed by people, and the insects that are living alongside those. Um, to some extent, some of those will have arrived um, from, let's say, buildings. Um, some of them are arriving from cess, which goes to another part of your question, which I'll touch on in a second. And some of them may well be coming in from things like dietary um, objects or things that are used in buildings and stuff like that. So thatch or, let's say, skins that are on the walls of a, of a house, for example. In terms of eating insects, I don't think there's any direct evidence that people consumed insects deliberately, although I have no doubt that they did, particularly early on. You know, they are a, a perfectly reasonable source of protein, although we're, we're kind of conditioned not to consume insects today. I'm almost certain that people ate a lot of insects, but almost certainly accidentally. Yes. So there are, when, when we think about cesspit samples, again, there are things that we see in cesspits all the time, um, uh, things like woodworm, for example. And I strongly suspect that a lot of those are just being eaten. Um, so there's a, there's a great paper that was written in, in uh, the 80s by Peter Osborne, who just tested, looking at his own cesspit, actually, it's a kind of a, a, an experimental study. So he, he, he looked at his own cesspit and compared it with archaeological cesspits. But he also went to the, the, the kind of extreme, if you like, of, of eating a number of insects and then seeing how they pass through his digestive tract the various different sorts of insects and they pass through perfectly perfectly well um, but it, it shows really that a lot of the stuff that we see in cesspits they probably are already getting there through people eating it um, and particularly grain pests for example you'll often find a few grain pests in in those kind of contexts and it's not like an infestation of grain so in, in some of the stuff in york for example in some of the roman material there are massive infestation of grain pests thousands of or thousands of them um, that's not what we usually see in the archaeological record. More often than not, we'll see one or two grain weevils or stuff like that. And those have almost certainly been consumed, either by people or by animals, and they've passed through and, and they've, they've just been deposited in, in feces, essentially. That, I mean, that, that experiment to eat insects and then root through your own cesspit. Yeah, yeah. Is, yeah, I'm not. I'm not as dedicated as that myself. I was going to say that is the most dedicated scientific experiment. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my God, uh, yeah, I'm. I'm glad certain other specialists in archaeology <laughs> exist and that I've chosen a slightly <laughs> safer path of kind of public archaeology. Um, uh, so I suppose, like you know, looking at things like parasites and pests and so on, you know, we're living in a time of pandemics at the moment, multiple pandemics in some ways. Uh, um, what can insects reveal about like big events like that? And do you know, when you think about events in the past were, you know, for example, the Black Death, that's very associated with fleas. But could beyond such a direct correlation, 
does the presence or absence of particular species, well, you might expect them, point towards like societal shifts, for example? Can they tell big picture things as well as, you know, an individual's diet? So to an extent, yes. I think part of the problem we have, and again, something we'll probably touch on later, is that the, the picture we have is relatively incomplete. Okay. So in environmental archaeology in general, we, we've tended to focus on particular time periods, let's say, or particular sample types and site types, which means that if you were trying to think about what do insects tell us about the difference, let's say, between the Neolithic and the Bronze Age, we just don't have the, the sites or the samples to be able to do that. Okay. They, they just don't, they either don't exist or they've never been analyzed. Yes. Um, if you think about some of that stuff, let's say in a British context, you go back to the Somerset Levels project, which is still really an exemplary um, project in terms of the amount of environmental work that was done, and particularly the insect work Maureen Gerling did. Um, then some of the big, those, those big questions start to come into focus, but just because of the sheer number of samples they looked at and the way they sampled in, in very thin stratigraphic layers through, through wetland deposits. So you can start thinking about things like climate change um, by looking at those. Okay. Uh, and see things which you, you can see things coming and going, which are, are, are no longer present within the, the British form in this case. So to some extent, you can get those big questions in terms of pandemic stuff. I think part of the problem is we just don't have the sample. So we have things like, let's say, cockroaches. We see um, cockroaches coming in to some extent in, in post-medieval Dublin. But we don't know when they arrive because we just don't have people have concentrated for a long time, let's say, on the Vikings. Um, and post-Viking stuff, there are relatively few samples that have been looked at, um, comparatively speaking. So we just don't, we, we don't have that, that full chronological picture of, of how things have changed. That's very interesting. And like I suppose, you know, aside from things like that can it tell us something about other types of activity say like farming or industrial processes or even trade do you, do you see certain species coming in and you think well that could have only come in in a you know the way that you always see in the the tabloids every year a brazilian wandering spider comes in and a bunch of bananas and bites someone from the yeah can you see that when archaeologically That's yeah that that does make that certainly does make more sense so there, there's um there's a few things that we see. So there's a, a fantastic um, thing called the building longhorn beetle, Hylotrupes bandulus, which we see it um, showing up in some of the Viking um, buildings in Dublin. Um, and Eileen Riley had it. We had it in, in one that we looked at recently from Chancellor Lane. Um, and that's a, it, it's, it's non-native and it's, uh, it, it takes a long time to develop. So as a larva, it will sit around in, in timber for a number of years. Um, munching away until it comes out as this large beetle and it's very loud I've never never heard one but by all accounts you can hear them from meters away like four or five meters away so you'd have been lying in your in your Viking house at night listening to this thing chewing its way through the wood <laughs> um, but those are almost certainly coming in in things like ship's timbers okay. so we do get certain amounts of that where insects are particularly strong is about understanding the let's say the minutiae of daily life so they can tell us probably more about the conditions that people experience on a day-to-day -day basis than any of the other methods that we use. And that to me is where they're, they're particularly fascinating. So if you're thinking about what was it like to live in a, in a house in Viking Dublin, what, what, was the, what was the daily experience that people, people understood, then I think insects can give you more information there than than maybe some of the other things that we might use. So particularly about hygiene or, I, I hesitate to use the word hygiene because we, we, it's slightly loaded. Um, our, our understanding of, of the way that these people lived is slightly loaded by a modern experience and what we consider to be kind of disgusting, if you like, by modern standards. Mm. Um, if this is the if these are conditions you understood and these conditions you, you experienced every day, then you probably wouldn't consider them to be disgusting. It, that's an interesting point. You know, I, I've got um, uh, a little fella who's four and a half and he will come running into the house with all manner of things. <laughs> and, it's, and it, you know, you don't want to put that cultural 
discussed on how to yeah. get that back outside. You don't want to give him any of that fear because all of that is learned. Uh, yeah. You know, you you want to encourage the curiosity about the natural world. Uh, this goes back to what we were saying about eating insects. Yeah. I think in in a medieval house, and I, I don't know, we may touch on this a little bit more later. The number of insects that you would have experienced, certainly in a in a let's say Viking period or slightly later house, would have been astronomical. Mm. Um, tens of thousands of insects within a relatively small space. Okay, so. If if you couldn't part with insects, you're in trouble. <laughs> You'd never have got them out. You know, it's not like my, my mother who would have run run around screaming and tried to try to swap them all. You you just can't you can't do that. You live alongside it. They're part of your of of, of the things of daily life. Yeah. Um, which is why eating them was probably again not such a big deal as well. It's probably dark and smoky. And you just eat what's in front of you. If it crunches a little bit, you probably can't see what's crunching too much. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, it's funny, isn't it? Everyone loves the idea of time traveling until they start thinking about these guys. Absolutely, yeah. And going back to the kind of the you know the minutiae and the living conditions, like you know, you describe a house in Viking Dublin. Do you see a difference in the insect sort of assemblage between? Um, you know, preservation aside to a certain degree, would you see a difference between an urban setting, a house in an urban context, and say, you know, a comparable site out in a ring fort in a rural area? Is there, does it, is it pretty much the same kind of living conditions that it points to, or do you see differences? In, in part, we're, we're hamstrung again by that lack of samples. So the the urban stuff we've we've got quite a lot of good samples, um, but again there's issues with that, and I'll talk about that in a second. The rural stuff we're still lacking good samples where you have waterlogged preservation in houses, and I suppose the other side of that is if you do have waterlogged preservation in houses in in the rural in a rural setting, how typical is that of what people would have lived in? Because most people obviously weren't living in waterlogged houses. The one really good example that's published and has been kind of held up over a number of years is the Deer Park Farm stuff. Um, so um, raised Rath in County Antrim, Harry Kenwood uh, and Emily Allison did the, the insects on years ago. And they're phenomenal assemblages. So there's really interesting stuff in them. They're, I suppose that the, the key takeaway is, is people lived in close proximity to their animals a lot of the time. So there's a lot of animal pests of one sort or another in the rural stuff that we don't necessarily see in, in the urban stuff that we've looked at so far, which suggests animals are probably moving in and out of the houses relatively freely. But the houses, um, are, there's a, this great phrase that Harry Kenwood uses in the publication where he talks about them as homely houses. Um, so despite the issues that we might think about with hygiene and the fact that there are thousands of thousands of insects, they are not dirty in the sense that there's not, for example, um, piles of rubbish on the floor and, and, and flies everywhere and, and let's say people using it as a toilet. So he talks about there being one potential use of the place, the toilet, which he describes as maybe uh, an occasion where um, a child was poorly and couldn't get out of the house in time. Um, so in general, people did keep the houses reasonably clear. And I think they probably replaced the floor layers, which is where most of the insects were fairly frequently um exactly how frequently we don't know but there's material inside and outside which suggests that stuff has been taken out of the house and disposed of and probably replaced periodically um so we don't necessarily understand what it was like to live in rural Ireland too much during let's say the, the early medieval period or even later later becomes even more difficult we've got very few examples of of kind of things, let's say 13th, 14th, 15th, 16th century. We, we have very few things to compare with. Um, in Dublin or in, in the city, I suppose one of our problems is that the, there's this granularity that we miss sometimes in the analysis. People talk about what was it like to live in a house in Viking Dublin? And you might as well ask, what's it like to live in a house in 22nd, 21st century, 22nd century, not there yet, 21st century Dublin. So, a house in Dublin is such a variable thing. It's very different if you're living in a house in Black Rock 
compared to a house, let's say, uh, a north in the city. To ask what's it like to live in a house in Dublin is, in a, in a, in a sense, a meaningless question. And to an extent, that same thing applies in when we think about, let's say, Viking Dublin. There are elements of commonality, but there are also elements where not all houses are the same. They depend on the person that's living in the house, they depend upon status, they depend upon building material, depend upon age. So we can't necessarily talk about a unified experience of living in a house in, in Viking Dublin. I don't, I, I don't believe there is such a thing as a unified experience there. I think there are some elements in common, but there are also probably likely uh, important differences between houses. So you can take um, the Christchurch Place House, the Russell Coop analysis. This is the first insect work that was ever really done in Ireland by Russell Coop, uh, published in 81. That's a, a big plank-built house next to Christchurch Cathedral, so it's probably a pretty high-status building. And it's got some of the usual things that you might expect in a Viking house, some of the floor-layer stuff, but it doesn't have, so far as I'm aware, any of the, the ectoparasites that we see elsewhere. The stuff that we've recently done at Christchurch Place um, not Christchurch Place, sorry, at Chan we've recently worked, done some work at Chancery Lane. The houses there, a little bit later, but are full of cess. So the whole house is basically covered in cess of one sort or another, liquid, solid, all sorts. So the difference between living in Chancery Lane in a house that's basically strewn with human excrement or living in Christchurch Place next to the cathedral in a fine blank-built house um, it's probably pretty massive. Yeah, you would imagine. I, the, do you know what it brings me back? I remember uh, we were at the uh, Institute of Archaeologists conference in Cork a couple of years ago, and I'll never forget the name of your paper, The Joy of Cess. <laughs> it just, it was... I tried to get different Cess titles in all the way through it, so yeah. Cess is, as I saw someone post something recently online, um, it is one of the most informative things that we have. It, it, it's kind of a closest substance, if you like, to the past people that we have. Yeah. It's directly from them. So if we can't learn anything from their, from their excrement, then we're, we're, we're probably not going to learn anything from, from any other part of their life. It's, it, it's so intimately associated with, with their lives. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it doesn't get much more intimate than that, does it? <laughs> um, we do get more intimate things occasionally. So, for example, if you go back to Deer Park Farms, there's there's lice, um, pubic lice, for example, in Deer Park Farms and stuff like that, or body lice at least. Um, um, and again, that interesting interesting point. So we see those at Deer Park Farms. We don't really see them in most of Dublin. We had them at Chancery Lane um, and seemingly around the, the central half. So it's like it's being used as a delousing area. Um, but most of the other... Viking Dublin sites have very few lights. So again, comparison between rural and, and, and urban, it's on based on very, very few sites. Yes. So it may well be that um, life was slightly harder for people in a, in, in a rural context. As you might argue it is today. Yeah, and, and it's that proximity to animals and such as well. And it, it makes you think actually hearing that there's less lice from the samples in, in Viking Dublin. Wasn't there a case in England that, was it a bishop or a monk or somebody was complaining that the Vikings were seducing uh, all the women because they, you know, the Viking men combed the hair regularly? <laughs> <laughs> I seem to remember reading about that somewhere. <laughs> you know. But certainly things like fleas, you know, fleas are everywhere. Fleas were a fact of life in, in, at this, this time. It, yeah. it, it, you just, you, you see them in almost every um house sample of this period yeah yeah that's very very interesting and do you have you know when you're looking through a, a sample yourself do you have any kind of particular pet favorites is the wrong word because they're not pets like but do you love to see a particular type of insect come out oh yeah lo there's loads of different ones that, that, that are nice to see so uh, i always like seeing the fleas because again you've got that intimate relationship with people in the past these are things actually fed off the people that lived in the houses that you're looking yeah, at yeah, yeah. um but the floor layer things in particular the urban stuff is always it, it's interesting because there it's actually to some extent it's a bit like the plant macro stuff as well it, it's almost like multiple different disciplines 
that are like closely related but also quite different. So the rural stuff, we're doing rural stuff at the moment, looking at some samples from um, Mesolithic sites down in Bray. Uh, and the insect assemblages are totally different from what you would see in uh, a medieval urban site. There's, there's almost no points of overlap between them. Um, some great stuff in, in, in both. I, do, I must say, I do like the urban stuff. I like the, the um, partly because of that close relationship with people in the past. So you get these, um, I haven't really talked about the floor layers in, in uh, medieval houses at the moment, but that's kind of the key thing in both Deer Park Farms and also in the Viking Dublin stuff is the composition of the floor. So Russell Coop speculated that the floor was actually acting as a central heating system because it's, it's, it's a, a, a deep kind of compost-like layer. Um, and what you've probably got is, let's say, a few inches of decomposing organic matter, which is full of insects, thousands upon thousands of insects, um, in particularly little blind, flightless things called the Glenus bruneus, which is like the classic floor layer um, insect. And then above that, there's probably a, a layer of dry material. So how many insects you'd actually see if you were sitting on top of one of these floor layers, I don't know. If you rooted down into it a couple of inches, it would be crawling probably you'd be moving almost. Um, but we see those, those are really kind of fun and that, that kind of material where, you, where you, you, you do your paraffining. So when you process the samples and you add the water, you, you get a pretty good sense straight away of how much is in there. So you see the stuff floating to the top and you get all these little black dots. And sometimes it's just like, it, it's a mixture of both excitement and also trepidation if you, are, if you have lots and lots and lots of black dots just think, oh no, it's going to take the Yeah, you're going to have to identify all of those. So yeah. Those floor layers are kind of formed. Is that the where people are kind of building, uh, bringing in things like rushes and laying down new rushes on top of the, without sweeping out the old stuff, they're just laying down layers of this stuff? Yeah, and they, they're certainly moving some out. So again, Russell Coop had looked at, again, this is very early work, but really took two samples, one from inside the house, one from outside the house. Mm -hmm. And the one from outside the house was, very very similar to the stuff from inside so it's essentially spent floor layer material okay. that's been taken out <clears throat> and replaced with new material what's interesting though is that as i said the, these things that aglinus particularly is a blind flightless people uh, and there's this question about how it gets around um because the, the deer, deer park farms again the, the floor layers are full of this stuff and it's not moving around very easily within the rural environment. So the question is maybe whether the material is being brought from one house to another, um, whether even part of that floor, there's a there's a, a movement of, of old floors into, into new houses and stuff like that, as like a foundation deposit even maybe. Um, we, we really don't know. Uh, we also, going back to some of your early questions, um, there seems to be a change obviously with the changing floor layers. So we don't have many later samples, but if you think about um, the stuff that Geraldine Stark recently excavated up in Bobek. We, we had a couple of insect samples out of that we were looking at, so um, later medieval material. And there's almost none, if any, of these four-layer insects in there. So if you're talking about a change between floors that are made of rushes or floors that are more likely to be flagged, that's a, a big shift in terms of what the insect assemblages um, will, will be like. Steve, I suppose it, it, it's very kind of appropriate in a way that we're having this conversation on uh, what is the anniversary of the passing of Dr. Eileen Riley, who's such a, an important figure in insect studies and environmental archaeology in Ireland. Can we talk a little bit about um, the background generally to insect studies and environmental archaeology here? You know, is it quite a recent field of study relative to archaeology or is it something that's been around since the beginnings i suppose so really the, the whole thing about looking at subfossil insects is is fairly recent and you, you can trace its origins back to the 1950s in birmingham and it, it really developed out of quaternary science and it was a method really initially used for looking at changes in climate at the end of the last glaciation through into the holocene um, because it was noticed that there were, there were dramatic shifts in insect species that were going on, um, and that those insects were the same insects that were around today, mostly at least. Uh, well, they are the same insects that are around today, just not necessarily in the same places that, are, that they're in today. 
um, but that they could still be identified and that their, for example, their, their climatic envelopes could be compared. So it was actually really important in that. And it was one of the first things that we, that, that as, good, as kind of um, paleo environmentalists used to understand the rapidity of, of change, um, climate change at that, that moment in time. So really through the 50s and, and the 60s, let's say, that was the main use for insect work. And, and Russell Coote, who I've already mentioned, that was really Russell Coote and Peter Osborne and Fred, uh, Fred Shotton and the Birmingham group really that developed that. The second generation of people from there were the ones, I suppose, that started thinking, started looking at bits and pieces of archaeology with, with that as well. And there were bits of archaeology. So late 60s, Peter Osborne looked at stuff from um, uh, Wilsford Shaft. And that was probably the first big archaeological work that was done with insects. So it's really quite recent, late 60s. And then through the 70s, there was a real development in this. So Harry Kenwood up in York, um, in particular, and, and Paul Buckland as well, to an extent, also working to some extent in York, picking up on the urban material and, and particularly those excavations in York uh, that were going on all the way through that period. Uh, on the other hand, you've got the Somerset Levels work, so Maureen Girling, um, people doing, like Mike Robinson, for example, doing work on, in the Thames Valley. Uh, but really, the number of people has always been pretty small that are doing this. Uh, and we're only one generation really removed from that. So Paul Buckland would have um, taught both myself and Eileen and Nikki Whitehouse um, and Eva, who's in, in um, Edinburgh. All of us would have been taught by Paul Buckland in Sheffield. Um, and, and Paul is really only one generation removed from the starters with Russell Cook. So we're, we're very near, if you like, the beginning still of, of fossil insect work. If you think about um, the work in Ireland, really it's a, it's a very short story, if you like. So it started with Russell Coote, um, who, as, as they say many things in environmental archeology span and paleo-environmental stuff in Ireland, it, it actually really started with Frank Mitchell and Frank Mitchell talking to Russell Coote and saying, these, these excavations are going on in Dublin at the moment, would you have a look at some samples from there? Uh, so a very preliminary piece of work was done by, by, by Russell Coop, looking at those two samples from Christchurch Place. Uh, and then not really much happened until, probably until Eileen um, arrived back in Ireland after her master's. So for her master's, she did work, I think, down in Waterford, uh, and then came back and started working with um, Barry Raftery and some of the stuff on the trackways um, at Corlea, for example, and bits and pieces of, of, of peatland work and really, I think a lot of it developed from there. So for, from the masters onwards, Eileen really did an enormous amount of insect work in, in Ireland um, with smaller amounts being done by, by, by Nikki, who was in Belfast at the time and, and by myself. Mm -hmm. um, so relative, for, for a while there, we have three insect people working on the island of Ireland, which is actually uh, quite a concentration, as you can imagine from what I was just saying a moment ago. We had quite a strong concentration of insect people operating here. Um, as, as it turns out, it's, it's, it's really me at the moment and kind of trying to um, train people to, to carry on, if you like, the, the next generation of people. And, and it's always hard to, to find people who are both interested and have the aptitude to do this. Yeah, I mean, it's quite a... It's quite a thing to get interested in, you know. I mean, we've had a lot of chat about cess, for example, <laughs> and like people's um, squeamishness to stuff like that. I wonder, is that a bit Barriers of a to some degree? I'm not sure, even if it's you know a thousand. Yeah, and people are very squeamish about insects. Uh, I've had people over over a number. Yeah, you know, I've taught this at UCD over over many years, and probably every time you teach at least one person who looks down the microscope at a, at a beetle and, and kind of almost physically jumps back like what's that um so and that's as well as the just the level of difficulty that's involved yeah. so it, it's quite different from most of the other paleo environmental methods that we use whether that be seeds or pollen or you know diatoms or whatever mostly what you get is the whole thing with insects, your first question is, uh, let's say, I'll, I'll talk about beetles rather than just insects in general, but the first question is, well, is it a beetle? If it is a beetle, which bit of a beetle is it? Okay. Because 
you know, a vehicle is made up of lots of these things we call sclerites. So it's a bit like Darth Vader with all these different armor bits of armor. Yeah. Um, and um, probably if you imagine burying Darth Vader for a number of centuries and digging up the various bits, like where does this bit go? So, so that's kind of, and, and also then a lot of the bits that we might find are not necessarily any use to us in terms of identifying what we've got. Um, and then moving on from that, you've got just a huge number of possibilities. So even in Ireland, there's probably a couple of thousand different insect species um, over a number of different families, lots and lots of different families that it could be. So it's just this kind of series of nested questions about, is it a beetle? If it is a beetle, which bit of the beetle is it? Um, which family does it belong to? Um, and then kind of which, which species within that family, can I identify which species in that family it belongs to? So it is a difficult thing to get your head around and you, you need to have a particular sort of memory um, and particular sorts of powers of observation mm -hmm. to be successful at it. Um, you need to be very good at spotting small differences between things and remembering something that you might not have seen for a decade just to be able to say, I've seen that once before, I know what that is. Yeah. Um, and having a, a good idea where to look. You know, I, I think I have great hopes for our little fella that he might get with <laughs> his fascination of insects and his ability to memorize every species of dinosaur. I know more about dinosaurs now than ever. Know. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, great hopes for him. Um, but what led you, you know, it is such a niche thing, what led you into it? And and was kind of, um, what was the kind of catalyst? Was it that you were, it was the particular course that you were doing and you got interested in it through that? Or were you always slightly interested in insects and, and the animal world? Oh, it's kind of luck for me. Um, I was always interested in, in, in taxonomy and classification. So I, 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 I've had a, a fairly checkered career in many ways. And I, so I started out as a, as a botanist and particularly interested in, ta in that idea of ta taxonomic botany. So real old school botany, looking at um, why one species is different from another species, rather than things that we might think about with, with molecular um, biology and stuff like that, what we call plant science. I was very much interested in, in the old school type of botany. And then from there, um, I, I moved into paleo environmental stuff. So there, there was an excellent master's course which ran over many years in environmental archaeology and paleoeconomy at the University of Sheffield, mm -hmm. which both I, well, I did, Eileen did, uh, Nikki did, various other people within Irish archaeology also did. I think Helen Lewis may well have done this at some point as well. Um, and that, I think, led to a number of specialists moving into various different fields from, from plant macros and pollen to insects. Um, but I still wasn't doing insects at that point. Um, I, I, I did a little insects, but I, I wasn't really very good at it at my master's course. So then I went off and did a PhD in pollen uh, and testate amoebae. Um, which again, not too dissimilar, and then finally got a postdoc doing insects. So I got a postdoc um, in Exeter, working with uh, Professor Tony Brown, looking at insects in floodplain deposits uh, on the River Cole, uh, looking at policy and environmental change. So not particularly archaeology, more paleo environmental stuff. And that was really where I, I, I started. So before that, I, I knew one end of an insect from another, but that was where I really had to focus and, and get my head around understanding where insects belonged. And I spent probably six months in a reference collection. So for those that don't know, when you go to the museum, there are a series of cabinets of insects arranged in particular taxonomic order, generally containing the British or Irish insect fauna, depending on where you happen to be. Um, so if you want to familiarise yourself with what's what, the best way to do it is probably just to spend a long time in one of those rooms, looking down a microscope and understanding why one insect is different from another insect. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. Very interesting indeed. And how do you think, you know, how do you think we kind of fur in, in environmental archaeology and, and insect studies? 
in Ireland at this particular time. Do you feel like we're doing enough? Uh, do you feel like there's a lot more opportunities um, for furthering the studies here? Oh, I never feel that we're doing enough. That's part of the problem. But then there, there's also a limit to capacity at the moment. And I think that's actually a big issue when we come to talking about environmental archaeology in general. And not only environmental archaeology, actually, specialist um, studies in general. There are a few specialists where, where there are quite a lot of people working. So, for example, Human Bone, where um, Cork ran, or I'm not sure if they still do, but they were the masters in running in human osteology. But some of the other methods, uh, and again, I don't only mean environmental stuff, it takes quite a long time to learn to be of a suitable standard. And the number of people that are capable of providing the training is relatively low. So it can be quite difficult to, to reach a certain level of competency and then to maintain work that's coming in at that level of competency as well. So it's a challenge, it's a challenging thing to get into, like all specialists, it's challenging to get into, it's quite challenging to stay into, into to, to a certain extent. Mm -hmm. In terms of what we're doing with insects, I think, and this is something we're working on as an environmental archaeology group. So we, we've kind of reinstated this group of environmental archaeology island, which uh, which is kind of a an umbrella group for many of the practitioners of environmental archaeology in Ireland at the moment. And I think. Some of my concerns in recent times have been particularly about urban material and about the, the lack of sampling on, on some of the, the sites that we might see. Um, as we all know, archaeology is excavation of destruction. Yeah. You know, once you've excavated these sites, that's your lot. And as much as we may well say, yeah, these sites are preserved in situ, they may be preserved in situ, but they're, they're underneath an office block. So our chance of getting back to them is, is relatively little. Uh, so if we're, we're excavating some of these sites, to my mind, we need to be sampling intensively and extensively. Uh, and if we want to understand some of what I was talking about earlier, this granularity, if you like, of living in, in the medieval city, um, we need to, to think more carefully about this. If I get one sample from one cesspit from one excavation, then what's it going to tell me? Yeah. Um, yeah. On its own, it tells me very little. If I had 100 samples from 100 different cesspits, each one on its own might just say, well, yeah, it was a cesspit. It was full of wet, rotting, decomposing stuff. But the interesting stuff starts when you come putting them all together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's often the bit that we miss. So sometimes we hear from site directors and we send them a report from their cesspit or their tannery bit and we say yeah it looks like a tannery uh, and they say well I could have told you that without doing the environmental stuff and that misses the point it misses the fact that it's not about each individual feature it's about the big picture it's about putting all this stuff together into a big story you know if, you, if you're just talking about it would be like excavating a site a post hole at a time and saying well that post hole didn't tell me anything it just told me it was a post hole yeah but, well, of course, it just told you it was a post hole because it was. But when you put it all together, then you've got a different picture. And I think that's sometimes what we miss. Yeah. No, that's very interesting. And do you think that um, there's a kind of danger slightly of, of uh, let's say, period bias? Like you might be have the budget or you might have the inclination to take more samples of, say, an earlier feature, like a Viking house, than you would a Georgian. Oh, absolutely. Um, the number of, let's say, post-medieval samples, we, we tend to, and I say we, I don't necessarily mean um, the environmentalists. I, I find it just as interesting looking at, uh, uh, say, post-medieval sets as I, look, as I find it looking at medieval sets. Um, but it tends not to get sampled. Um, there is a big period bias. Um, the Vikings are obviously ever popular. Um, anything Viking get, tends to get done pretty well. Um, some of the earlier material were just lacking the waterlogged samples for preservation. Mm -hmm. So, okay, we've got the, the Mesolithic stuff, the Lakes Discovery Program, the Lake Settlement Project. There's, there's good insect work in that and possibly more still to be done. Um, the, but if you're thinking about waterlogged 
Neolithic material, I'm not sure I can think of a site that you could you could pick. There's probably some waterlogged Bronze Age material out there, but I'm not aware of much being done with it. Um, so we do have both those geographic biases and those period biases that I've already kind of mentioned. Um, we don't know much about rural Ireland. We certainly don't know much about rural Ireland in, in let's say, post-medieval period. Um, so there's still stuff to be done. I mean, you, did, you yourself did some stuff at Kilbegley, but again, that's kind of site, let's say, um, um, anything to do with uh, monastic stuff, for example, as well, relatively little work's been done. And, and there's, there's, there's enormous potential there uh, to understand how people lived in rural islands. We just don't know. No, for sure, absolutely. And uh, it, it's those kind of things, as you say, it needs that big picture kind of approach. So it, it, it does need that kind of collective, well, that has to be the budget allowed to be. I suppose the other side of that as well is the biogeography. Yeah. So let's say, for example, the material we're looking at from Bray at the moment is full of stuff that isn't in Ireland anymore. Okay. And we don't understand those histories. We understand bits and pieces of them. So every now and again, we get a site like Lachine, again, which is full of these things, which are what we call herbal taxa, so um, primary woodland taxa. But we don't tend to go out and look for these sites. There's, there's not really been a systematic effort to understand the, let's say, the, the woodland history of Ireland from, from an insect perspective. Um, there is the potential there to do stuff like that, and it becomes increasingly important when we have when we have all these debates about things like rewilding that are going on at the moment, um, where we don't really understand what we're rewilding to. We don't have the data to be able to tell us that. So there, there's a lot of potential out there for, for big paleoenvironmental work, uh, not necessarily apart from the archaeology. It kind of stands alongside the archaeology. So like the stuff down at Bray. Um, whilst we don't have any direct evidence of archaeology there, we do know that people were over in, on, on Dorky Island at the same kind of period of time. So we're, we're very close to, to, to the, the landscape that these late Mesolithic people were inhabiting. And, and for you kind of, your regular archaeologists like me who might be excavating a site, should we specifically start sampling more foreign insects? I'm always going to say yes to that question, I think. Um, it's a case of it's this granularity thing we can go back to that again in that you can go back and think about areas within a single house let's go back to our house as an example so on the one hand yeah one house is different from another house but if I get like Russell Coop started off with two samples from the house one from inside and one from outside What's it really tell me? Okay, it gives me a very broad brush idea of what it was like to live in the house, but it's very broad brush. It doesn't tell me about things like use of space within the house. Um, okay. It doesn't tell me about phasing. So sometimes you'll, you'll, you'll go through, as a specialist, you'll go through ports and you'll, and you'll see, well, I've got one sample from this part of the site from this phase, and I've got one sample from another part of the site from a different phase. What I really want actually is, is to see the changes in the same place through different phases. Mm -hmm. um, because I'm, at the end of the day, I'm really looking for change. Uh, it's, it's nice to be able to talk about a single entity, if you like, with, with, a, with a dwelling. But some of the best stories, if you look at some of the stuff that, that um, Paul Buckland and various people have done up in the North Settlement in, in, in Greenland, some of the stories they can tell there because they've looked at the, the progression of a, of a house through time are just much stronger stories. So they can talk about things like um, people starving, um, sheep eating things that, that are high protein, for example, and not necessarily the normal things they would eat, and finishing off with, with the house being de-roofed and probably dead things sitting within the house. So you've got these kind of much more fully fleshed out stories um, than you just get if, if you get, well, here's a bag of stuff from the corner of a house. Yeah, yeah, it's doing it with that kind of intent to look at the big picture. Yeah, it, it, at the end of the day, it's like any sampling. It's like, what's the story you want to understand? What, what are you trying to understand? Here? Yes. Um, and sometimes that might just be, what was it like to live in the house? Yeah. 
but sometimes it might be a lot more about trying to understand if you like the life history of a building yeah very interesting indeed and well, I think we'll uh, end on that note Steve it's been such a fascinating chat it, it's uh, an area I find so interesting I'm, I'm slightly you know as I say I'm slightly squeamish insects are coming into my life a little more now than I wish that but, but I think it's such an interesting way of looking at the past and uh, yeah really enjoyed the chat thanks so much for joining me thank you so that's it for this episode of Amplify Archaeology Podcast. And I'd just like to thank Steve again for all of his time and insights. I really enjoyed that chat. You can find more information and links in the show notes on our website at abartaheritage.ie. If you're a new listener to Amplify Archaeology, we have about 30 other episodes that you can dig back into, if you forgive the pun. Uh, we have episodes on uh, Viking Dublin. So some of the themes that we talked about here with Steve, for example come up again in that chat with Rebecca, Dr. Rebecca Boyd when we talked about Viking Age Ireland. Uh, we have other episodes then like a, a ser- mini series on Newgrange in the winter solstice, wetland archaeology, uh, caves, lots of really really interesting chats and you can find the whole catalogue at our website or on your particular favourite podcast platform. If you're listening on Spotify or Apple, if you don't mind leaving us a review, it really does help our visibility. And do make sure that you're subscribed as well uh, because we'll have new episodes coming up. We've got a couple of really interesting ones lined up for the next couple of months. If you're interested in engaging more with archaeology, if you want, for example, to go and find great places to visit, or if you want itineraries for days out and adventures around places like the Dingle Peninsula or Connemara, um, or the Causeway Coast, for example, you can find our new membership website. It's called Tour. And there we also have a series of exclusive webinars and online courses as well. So you can join us there on tour.ie. That's T U A T H A dot I E. But until then, do stay with us here on Amplify Archaeology for the future episodes and take care for now. Thanks a million for joining me. Goodbye.